0: Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to look at the D&D Direct announcements we saw last week. I am going to the Virtual D&D Summit on Monday, and I wanted to talk about some of the questions that I have, some of the topics that I'm bringing. I don't know if I'm going to be able to talk to him or not, but I thought I'd have him handy. There is a new Play D&D homepage to help new players get involved in D&D. We're going to take a look at it, and particularly at one of the really cool features that it's got Cubicle 7, who has made a bunch of different RPGs, including the Middle Earth RPG, it has a new C7D20... 5e DD game that they're putting out and they have brought out their design goals we're going to take a look at those design goals and we're going to take a quick look at some of the new ancestries from shadow of the weird wizard by robert schwab and finally we're going to go through more questions from the march 2023 patreon q a for sly flourish patrons i'm mike shea your pal from sly flourish here to talk about all things in tabletop rpgs this show like all of the work of sly flourish is brought to you by the patrons of sly flourish Patrons get access to a dedicated Discord server, the monthly Q&A, a bunch of exclusive adventures, the City of Arches sourcebook, a Dwarven Forge virtual tabletop background library, all different kinds of things that patrons get by joining the Sly Flourish Patreon. You can find a link to join the Sly Flourish Patreon down in the show notes below. And to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. So this past week, Wizards of the Coast had their D&D Direct announcements. They had a, it was like a half hour long and they ripped through a whole ton of different stuff. Luckily, they have a D&D Beyond page that summarizes all of the things that are in that video. So if you don't want to watch the entire video, you can actually just read the different things that are on there. and Maybe go take a look at the specific things. I think they broke out a lot of them in their own independent videos as well. And I have thoughts that I want to share. So first thing they talked about was Dungeons and Dragons coming to Minecraft. Cool. Minecraft is awesome. I'm a big Minecraft fan. I, I I dive in and out of Minecraft from time to time. I think that's really neat. I guess my big question is, can you build stuff? Because I think this is... It feels like it's going to be more like Minecraft Dungeons, which was a lot of fun. Minecraft Dungeons was a fun game, but it was not... You couldn't build anything. It was just like a, a typical kind of dungeon hack sort of game, which I enjoyed. And frankly, with, in the D&D universe, I would like that very much. It looks more than that, so we'll see. But hey, I, I think this is a great merging of two brands. One of the things I want to kind of make clear about my feelings on this sort of thing, is I talked about where I see Wizards of the Coast providing a really great value to the larger tabletop RPG community, the hobby, the industry. And for me, they are the they are in the best position to be able to spread the idea of D&D and tabletop RPGs to the rest of the world who might not otherwise know about it. Today, I'm going to go see a D&D movie. That is pretty awesome. D&D and Minecraft, pretty awesome. And a lot of the stuff that they announced, I had heard people kind of talking about it and they're like, well, that's dumb or I don't like that or I thought that was really weird and cringy. And you're like, it ain't for you necessarily. And it ain't about us because we're already here. We're already in the industry. We're already playing games. We're already using lots of other fifth edition publisher products it's about the people who don't know about this that we want them to get hooked and that's lots of different people with lots of different things and lots of different ideas about what they want and lots of things that draw them in so try them all and they're not going to be for all of us and we might look at them and say oh those are really dumb but it doesn't matter because it might be for somebody else and the idea of combining Minecraft and D&D that's fantastic and there could be lots of parents who could play whose kids play Minecraft but don't play D&D even though Minecraft really is very much like D&D already they could go try it out so I'm very I'm excited to see this as a Minecraft fan and as a as a d fan. I'm, I'm very interested to see this. They do have a Minecraft creatures. The, the folks at Wizards of the Coast designed some stat blocks for Minecraft creatures like the Blaze, the Creeper, the Ender Dragon, the Enderman. Cool. Like, I don't, not exactly practical. And I'm not going to go into the design or anything like this because it's, it's a neat, it's like a fun thing to do, but it's not really that important. And, you know, it's not you know, like you're, you know, it's it, it's kind of gimmicky. I'm, I'm not knocking it. That's cool. You want to do it sort of a promo? That's really that's really neat. They talked again about Dra- Dozens of Dragons Honor Among Thieves. Lots of people are talking about the movie. I'm about to see the movie right after this show, actually. So I might have some thoughts about it, but I'm not really going to dive into the movie too much because I towed the to focus on the tabletop RPG aspect. But boy, you will have no problem finding people talking about the movie and what it means for DD. There are new player resources at playdnd.com. We're actually going to talk about this separately because this is something that I think is really good, really important. Again, this is exactly where I want Wizards to be. If you look at the stuff I just talked about, the movie, Minecraft, you know, connections, other things, and then having a really good onboarding way for people to understand what playing D&D is like. That's super important, and that's what I really want Wizards to focus on, and they are doing so here. And we're going to take a bigger look at it as we get through the other stuff, but that is something that's really important. There's new D&D play events. They are having, I think, a Learn to Play on a bunch of different weekends in the year, that's really cool. They're using Prisoner 13, a fourth level adventure. Apparently, I've heard from some people the best adventure in the Keys from the Golden Vault. Fourth level, it's you know I think you probably a first or second level would probably be better. But hey, nobody asked me. And then Hasbro March Monster Madness. So then there's a whole lot about other merchandise, toys accessories, you know, WizKids has a bunch of full-size miniatures like a mimic and an owl baby owl bear and other things. There's more connections between Magic the Gathering. In this case, they're doing a Secret Lair Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves Magic the Gathering connection. That's fine. RA Salvador talked about the new books about Drizzt and there's also a new Neverwinter module that's focused on menzo Baranzin. That looks pretty interesting. I haven't played the Neverwinter game in a long time. It would be pretty interesting. And then we get to the tabletop virtual, the virtual tabletop, the D and D virtual tabletop, and they have a video. I, if you're interested in the virtual tabletop, if you're interested in the topic of the virtual tabletop, I would definitely take a look at the video. They actually have players sitting around a table with their laptops playing in the virtual tabletop. It's obviously an edited video. I'm sure things are not nearly as smooth as they made them look out to you. Know, they made it look to be, but it's still a good way to see like what does this thing look like. And I'll tell you the range of opinions that i saw went from it's going to be the most revolutionary way to play DD ever and it's going to bring everybody into it to this is going to completely destroy the hobby and it's all going to be dead in a year and and then lots of ranges in between it's probably a big curve about things in between i'm my my point of view is hey go go with the gods try it out see what you can do and and i don't think it's going to be as Big a draw. I I mean I think the, you know I'm, I'm you know I don't want to make a prediction. I I think it, it it's because of what it is and because of how it works. It's probably less of a draw than like the D D Beyond character sheet, because the D D Beyond as a as a play, way to build your character is really sticky it's really good it's easy to use it works on every device you can use it with other virtual tabletops you can use it with your Albert Rodeo Foundry's got a plugin for it there's beyond 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 20 which lets you import your character or let's you use your D&D Beyond character in Roll20. There's lots of different ways that this connects. So this is another virtual tabletop. It's a different virtual tabletop. But I don't know that it's going to like dominate the industry. I could be wrong and it could turn out that it dominates the industry. If it does dominate the industry, it will be for the same reason that D&D Beyond is dominating. the. And even then you say, oh, it's dominating, it's 50%. Like last time I did a poll, about 50% of people were using D&D Beyond. Which is not everybody, obviously. The reason why D&D Beyond is as popular as it is is because it's really good. D&D Beyond is really good. That's what actually makes it dangerous, is how good it is, how much players like it, how much they find, how useful they find it. If the virtual tabletop takes off like that, that means people really like it. That means people really think it's good. And then do we have to look and say, is it a risk to the, the general TTRPG industry? I don't know. One question I have is like, how open is it to just be used as a VTT without the mechanics, like can I run, how easy is it for me to run other monsters? How easy is it, like if I wanna pull a bunch of stuff from Cobalt Press, is that easy for me to do? I don't know. One thing that I think is easily missed, and this is something Kyle talked about, is the virtual tabletop and D&D Beyond aren't totally in- integrated with one another. It isn't one tool, it's two separate tools, two separate windows, and the virtual tabletop can definitely import from d d Beyond, but they are not the same thing. d d Beyond is not turning into the virtual tabletop it is a separate enterprise at least according to Kyle and then from what we heard watching this video so we we don't have to be quite so worried about like oh they're going to be changing D&D Beyond by adding this it's like no they're really going to be separate tools and separate implementations so what kind of effect is this going to have on the TTRPG industry the jury's still out and we won't know until it comes out and also I would not hold your breath because I think we're two years away from this being a really big thing they were talking about doing like r- limited beta testing. I don't even think they called it beta testing late this year. So it's going to be a long time before it comes out. And if you're not into it, you don't have to use it. I'm pretty sure you're going to be able to play D&D however you want anyway. And you can use any of your existing virtual tabletops. And a lot of people are heavily invested in their other virtual tabletops. So I wouldn't worry about it too much. So we'll see. We'll see see how it comes out. There's, There's a lot of questions that come out. The one thing where I'm like, wow, that would be really cool is I would love to see a 3D representation of Castle Ravenloft built in a tool like this. That would be pretty neat to see. So... I don't know. We're going to be talking about the VTT for a long time. It's got a long ways to go. I'm sure it's going to be a topic at the D and D summit, which is coming on Monday. We'll talk more about that. I talked about the life size figures. These are life size, as in like it's a mimic stuff like that. Joe Manganello uh, talked about it. He, they mentioned he mentioned that his interest in doing a live action Dragonlance thing. That got a lot of attention. It was interesting that Wizards of the Coast put that into the thing because I don't think they've made any announcement about doing a live action Dragonlance thing. I don't think or any kind of Dragonlance thing. But he clearly is interested in it. But he's talking about the documentary he's doing. That's cool. And then we talk about the the future of D&D source books and adventures. We get a little bit more detail about the books we knew were coming out this year, including Bigby Presents Glory of the Giants. This looks like a giant-focused book similar to Fizban's Treasury of Dragons and Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. I'm excited for that. Giants have a really neat history. It'll be fun to see that. Fandelver and Below the Shattered Obelisk looks like a longer campaign adventure that hopefully sits up against Stormwreck Isle and Lost Mine of Fandelver in a way so that there's actually an on-ramp for people that get started with D&D to then go to to Fandelver and below. We'll see now. Here's the one that I was interested in and I'm, I'm hanging on to a couple of words and I'm hanging on really tight. And it is one of the questions that I want to bring to wizards of the coast tomorrow. Planescape adventures in the multiverse. And we're going to look at some words here. Discover Sigil, 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 discover Sigil, a city where everyone and everything comes together and where you'll find a realm of wild and weird planes to explore. This book, not box set. This book sets up our major adventure in 2024. That tells me two things. And again, I may be hanging on to to a couple of things too tightly. One is, is it a book or is it a box set? Now, the thing that makes me say, they might've changed their mind and made it a book, is that they say this book here, and when Jeremy Crawford was talking about it in the video, he referred to it a book as well. Now, they didn't say, we have switched away from the box set to go to a book, but they have said book a couple of times, in a couple different places, in heavily edited video. It wasn't an off-the-cuff statement. He said it on a video where they are clearly editing it very, very clearly. And I don't know how big a deal the box set versus a book thing is. Maybe they're just like, oh, we just meant box set, but you know, whatever. I don't know. But... I'm hoping that that means it's a book and that's some, the question I'm going to ask. And the other one is it sets up our major adventure in 2024. So we know that Planescape is coming out this year and if it's setting up the major adventure, that means that it is a it could be a setting book, not an adventure book. What I desperately hope for as a fan of Planescape is that it is a setting book and it's a book, a book that's a setting. That's what I really want. I'm on Van Richten's Guide as Planescape that would make me very happy. And I'm hoping that's what they have. And I'm going to, I'll probably ask tomorrow and find out more. The book of many things. I don't know what the hell this is. The book of many things. For the first time ever, we're exploring the story behind the campaign rocking deck of many things. What is it? is it a, i don't know what that is so who knows so then they talked about they gave little hints about stuff that they're doing in the future we know that they are going to be focusing on vecna as a major villain that they are looking at the planes the red wizards of Thay are coming out so lots of different things that they're doing in their story focus of 2024 we know a lot about one D D, the new version of DD coming out so those were the DD direct announcements interesting stuff We'll see where it all we'll see where it all plays out. Tomorrow, I am going to be at the virtual the D&D Summit virtually, and I have been putting together my thoughts and my questions about things that I wanted to bring To the summit. I don't know anything about the format. It's long, I can tell you that. It's like a seven hour long event. So it's, and it's three big ones. There's like an intro, and then there's a couple. It looks like they do like a breakout group. So I guess they're going to have like a small number of digital folks that are going to be connected to a designer to talk or something like that. I don't really know how that's going to play out. And then they have sort of a bigger thing at the end that looks like you're just going to be able to watch it. I don't really know. And, And there's no agenda. Nobody sent out any agenda for it. They did ask, like, what questions do you have for wizards or what topics? And so I brought up a couple topics. Which I'll talk about today. But there is definitely, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know what it's going to be like. So I thought I would offer up on the show, some of the things that I was curious about. These are questions that I put together, also questions that I got from talking to other patrons of Sly Flourish. What are some of the things that we are interested in? So these are kind of my three big questions about where Wizard sits in the community. And I have a feeling if my opportunity is to talk to one of the designers about this, that's not really gonna help because the designers aren't any, they don't have more ability to deal with these things than anybody else does. But I'm bringing them forward as much as I can. So the question is, what is what is WotC planning to do to support the whole 5e and RPG community as things move more online? Will WotC, specifically, will WotC commit to continued support to Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds for future 5e and one d products? And will WotC commit to supporting Foundry, Shard, Demiplane, and other digital tools? To me, that's an important thing of like, how well are you working in the community is, are you putting everything into just D&D Beyond in your VTT? Or are you willing to put out your other material to these other platforms to support as wide a range of different tools, especially as more and more people are playing D&D online? To me, that's, a, that's an important question. It's something I've been ruminating a lot. What is Watsi's plan to continue to support the wider 5e and RPG community? Having Forge on D&D Beyond was awesome, and I was very appreciative of them to do that. Are you doing more things like this? The in-store learn-to-play weekends are also fantastic. What else is WotC doing to grow the whole tabletop RPG community? Rick, what are they doing to support the whole hobby, not just focusing on D&D? I'm, I'm curious if they've got anything. And a lot of people are like, how dare you ask a question like that? They, are, they have shareholders. They should be focusing on D&D. Hey, maybe, but they asked. So I'm going to offer, they, they can say no, or they can come up with some BS, or they can say, yeah, these are ways that we're going to kind of grow the, the greater community. But we'll see. We're seeing some real energy behind bringing new players to D&D. What, idea, what other ideas, events, and products is Wizards working on to make D&D as accessible as possible to new players and DMs. Again, I've seen a lot that like play, play D&D is great. The focus on, on new character sheets, we'll talk about this in a minute, but the new character, the new pre-gen characters they have for D&D Beyond, really, really great. What else can they do to bring more new people to D&D, which I really see is where Wizards is in the right spot to do it. Then my question, is Planescape going to be a book or a box set? Is it an adventure or is it a campaign source book? It's not clear. Any future books, are any future books returning to worlds like Eberron, Spelljammer, or Dragonlance? Are there any new MTG books on the horizon? I don't think they're going to be able to answer it, but I'll ask. Will the VTT or D&D Beyond only be compatible with one D&D going forward in 2024? Or will they continue to support the 2014 version of 5e and the products that have been out since? I expect the answer will be D and D Beyond is going to continue to focus on what it focuses on. We're still figuring out the VTT, but we'll see. What other? This is something where I'm like, okay, if I'm going to be sitting with other designers, I'd like to talk to them about it and say, what other RPGs are they playing, and from and 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 what from those games are influencing the direction that they're looking at for D and D? What other RPGs do they like? What other things have they seen, and they say that's really cool. That's something we'd like to see more of in D and D. Just as a designer, I'd be I'd be curious about that. So those are some of my questions. By the time you listen to this podcast or see this video, I'm probably already in the summit, but you can leave a comment and maybe there's opportunity for me to bring up other questions as well. So we'll see. So I mentioned during the D&D redirect that they had announced some new stuff for players. And what they did is they now have a page called play D&D. If you go to playdnd.com, it redirects to the D&D beyond play area. And it's got a really good, this is, this is exactly the kind of thing I was talking about. Like, how do you get players to a page where they can learn what Dungeons & Dragons is, they can learn how to play, they can learn what they're going to do. And one of the new things that they have in this is you can actually get a pre-gen D&D Beyond character. So with a single click, you just saw me click it, I can get Taryn the Spearbreaker, a human barbarian. There's a There's a tour video to walk through how this is, and you can claim the character, which adds it to your own account. Holy cow. I have a friend who runs D&D for lots of new players and she said she was literally dancing around her house when she saw that you can now get a D&D Beyond character sheet with one click. And it doesn't seem like that big a deal and there's lots of nerds who are going to be like, oh, I don't like the way it handled this or it didn't have the right spell or it had somebody said, oh, it's got Witch Bolt instead of Hex and that's terrible. That's it ain't for you. Man, you can go and build your own character sheet exactly the way you want. This is for brand new players. And the question is, is Hex, and does, does, does a new player really care about the difference between Witch Bolt and Hex? Witch Bolt is kind of not a great spell, but you know, who cares? It's about learning D&D and it's about getting in as fast as possible. So that is really, really great that you have all of these new character classes. You know, you can, you can pick your fighter. I think they have a couple different versions of fighters, but you click it and you get a stat sheet ready to go, ready to play, and you can hit Claim, and it drops it right into your account. The only issue is, of course, you need to have an account. So that's that's fantastic. Just having some pre-gen characters in D&D Beyond. Big step forward. Big step forward to be able to doing this. And then they offer the campaigns, and they're free. So you have Lost Mine of Phandelver, which is an excellent adventure. It was one of my top favorite published adventures for 5e. It was the number one favorite adventure for 5e for me. For a long time. And now it's like it's up there. It's in the top three because I like Dragon Vibe Spire Peak a lot, and I like Dragon of Stormwreck Isle. It'd be pretty cool if they made Dragon of Stormwreck Isle a free adventure, but they're also trying to sell the book, so I don't suppose it'll be there. But you can click it and you get right into it, actually will add it to your account and everything like that. But you can get it and throw it right into your account, and you are ready to go play an adventure. So you have Frozen Sick, which is set in Matt Mercer's World of Exandria in the Wild Mount book, a first level character written by my friend James Intercasso, and that is available for free. And then there's a fourth level adventure. It's kind of interesting this fourth level i might have offered like a second level although lost mine of phandelver is first to fifth so you could theoretically drop prisoner 13 in there but it's icewind dale so it's in a really different spot so it's kind of interesting they picked this one i think they picked it because it's new prisoner 13 is one of the adventures from keys of the golden vault it's apparently a pretty good one i haven't really looked at it yet but that is available for free for for everybody so really neat kind of how to get started which products to pick up how to pick up a character creating your character play before the storm is a solo Online adventure that shows you the mechanics of DD. It's fantastic. I really like it. So I think this is an excellent way to get people kind of onboarded with DD. Is it helping the community? Not really, but it does in the sense that people will get started here. We want people to learn how to play DD, to get interested in playing the DD, learning how to play DD, playing DD, getting excited about it, playing it with their friends, and then expanding out and trying more stuff. And to me, it's that, that, that last bit where they say, uh, you know, I want monsters from other sources. Or look, that source book from that company, that looks really good. Or that setting, these settings don't grab me as much, but that setting over there, that setting looks really good. That's what I'm excited. That's what I'm excited about. That's how I see the funnel kind of working. So I'm very excited for this page, and I think it's really nailing exactly what we want Wizards of the Coast to be doing, which is onboarding people from going and eating popcorn in a movie to becoming big fans of the hobby. And this is a good first step. This is a good, this is a good direction that they're going in. And I, I like it very much in the news of other fifth edition publishers and what they're doing. Cubicle seven has announced their design goals for their RPG, which is under the code name C7D20. And they have a good article. You can find a link to this down in the show notes below. Yeah, I love cookies. Give me more cookies. And it talks about what are the principles behind C7D20 and what set it apart from other fifth edition publishers and now we really have four big publishers of future versions of 5e we have level up advanced 5e which is already out and i really really love we have cobalt press's black flag which is being developed now we have one D&D. we of course have the 2014 version of 5e so we always have that we have one D&D, which is coming out and we have cubicle 7 c7d20 which is going to have a better name than that that it sounded like a cyberpunk game but they talked about their design principles for this and they had some interesting ones we're building c 7 D20B, a complete rule set that offers all the exciting action-packed adventures players expect from a d20 fantasy game with an added focus on exploration investigation and the quiet moments between adventures that's cool that's something that we don't really see a lot of definitely level up advanced 5e has has touched on this and this gets into that really cool idea that we can steal from all of these games to build our version of 5e that we want at our table i can pull up ideas from this i can pull ideas from black flag i can pull ideas from 2014 dnd one dnd i can I, I now have five at least five and there's actually more five torches deep there's tons of different 5e variants out there and i can steal ideas from all of them and they're like well published well play tested house rules so i'm actually very excited about that so freedom create a standalone d20 based fantasy role-playing system that was one of their goals <clears throat> they want a modern take on classic fantasy yeah familiarity so system should feel familiar evolution it should grow from the bones of 5e it's not a clone. It's an evolution. They keep the basic building blocks as like cast, classes, species, and rolling each D20, but creating a more elegant game experience. And they want to be compatible with 5E. So all of these groups are talking about compatibility with 5E. None of them are creating a brand new thing. You want a brand new thing, it's more like Shadow Dark RPG, where it's its own RPG that really isn't backward compatible. So they're, they're bringing out two books, a player's guide and a game master's guide. That's pretty interesting. No monster guide. And I, that's probably smart because we know that Black Flag is gonna have a monster book. They talked about that. We already have the level up advanced 5v monstrous menagerie, which is really good. We of course have the monster manual. Cobalt Press has a million monster books. So we, we're we're swimming in monster books. You probably don't need to make another one. But, you know, and then they always leave themselves open. If they want to make a monster one because they've got it, that's fine, too. Player's Guide provides the core roles for playing the game, making characters, including six brand new classes. So they're creating new classes. That's kind of nice because maybe you want to play one of these classes. You think it fits your world. Well, you can pull it from this and put it right in here. Eight species, a life path character creation, talents. They're doing talents, too. So now we're going to get into this, like, feat, feat collision discussions. Equipment, new spells, collection of downtime activities. So downtime activities could be really cool. Game Master's Guide, new rules, modules that they can plug into their game. So this one, where the, the C7020 Game Master's Guide, this feels like a third-party unearthed arcana. Right? It is a book of different DM house rules that you can grab and drop into your game, and that's fantastic. Journey rules, options for non-violent conflict, rules for playing games of political intrigue, gritty survival rules, and much more. That sounds fantastic. I'm, I'm probably, mo- I, you know, I'm a life what do they call it what do the kids call it these days a forever gm so i'm a forever gm so gm stuff always excites me but on the other hand you know this could be really cool too if you think it fits your world as well as these two core books are already in development three more supplements these books along with uncharted journeys of broken weave means c7020 will launch with seven books did they say when it will launch later this year so are they doing playtesting? We want your help. Help us create a fantastic. We'll be sharing surveys, quizzes, and other ways to share your ideas. So they're doing kind of open playtesting too. Already underway with internal playtesting. Plan to offer closed playtesting in the coming months with a view to releasing a wider playtest closer to launch. Why are you doing a playtest close to launch when books are already being printed? That's weird. Uh, if you'd like to be involved, you can you can email them. So you can find a link to that in the show notes below. But very cool. And I'm excited about it because I, like, I just, you know, we're going to get a lot of really great products. 5e is its own platform and we have lots of different publishers for 5e and all different directions we can go. And I think it's fascinating and it excites me. It excites me greatly. For other role-playing games, we have Shadow of the Weird Wizard by, Sh- by by Robert Schwab. And he talked about, he's got an article here where he talks about the ancestries for Shadow of the Weird Wizard. One of the things he talks about is that the human is the default. So if you pick up the book for Weird Wizard and you go in, the default ancestry is human. However, in the back of the book are you know 20 different uh, ancestries besides human. Now, one of the things About the way if Shadow the Weird Wizard plays out the same way that Shadow the Demon Lord did, is you get you already have lots of Decisions that you make early on in the in the book, which is why they kind of focused on human. But it seems like this is kind of a fun way that you can add these new ancestries. And he talks in detail about the sprite, the sprite in particular, sort of fae a, this fairy, uh, you know, a, a fairy, a fairy ancestry that's in there. So really pretty neat. I'm I'm very excited to see the development of Shadow the Weird Wizard. I'm excited for the book. I think you know Robert Schwab is a fantastic designer, fantastic developer. I love Shadow the Demon Lord, but I get that we need to have a lighter a more lighthearted general fantasy version of shadow of the demon lord is exactly what i'm looking for so i'm very excited for this too the, the, the reality is we're going to be swimming in awesome role-playing game awesome role-playing games you can find a link to that down in the show notes below let's do some patreon questions every month i put up a thread on the sly flourish patreon server any patron of sly flourish can post a question there asking about a D&D or ttrpg related topic some of the i answer all of the questions on that site every friday and some of those questions i take that i think are more generally generally useful to a wider range of people i take those and i put them here in the notes and then some of them actually become articles or videos of their own so let's look at our first question Sargoto says about six months ago in an attempt to continue to develop my game master abilities I opened the doors to a series of one shots that allowed players to drop in this greatly increased the amount of players I had at the table and I found that the experience that the experience to be a great benefit to learn how to best interact with various play styles do you have a recommendation for other ways I can take my game master toolbox to the next to the next levels so I have an article on Sly called Paths of DM Expertise I wrote this a couple of years ago and it talks about like how do you grow as a gm how do you what are the different ways that you can get better at this and the model that i used from this was this awesome video that was on wired where they talked about the levels of complexity for skateboarding with tony hawk and it was his was a really really fun video where he goes through the 20 i think 23 levels of complexity of skateboarding all from doing like an Ollie, is it? I think it's called an Ollie as like the lowest level of skateboarding to doing like moves that have never been done. I don't know if all of the moves have been done at this point. I remember he said there were like three moves that hadn't been done. And that between the filming of the video and when it was published, one of them had been accomplished, like a an eleven eighty on a half pipe or something crazy like that. So um, Fascinating look at like how to get you know what are the levels of complexity and I was like what what is that like for D it doesn't actually fit the D model that well but there are certain things we can look at where like what happens when you're just getting started to how you grow how you grow in complexity the idea of starting off by running adventures from the D and starter sets running a short first campaign you know that focus on becoming the character's biggest fan focusing more of your energy on them and then we get into the question that, that you bring up in this in this that you brought up in this patreon question which is the idea of lot, running lots of games running lots of systems and the other thing i would add is running for lots of groups so you you are correct that it 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 shatters your brain to play with different sets of players So when you can play games with a lot of different players so there's really like a few angles play games with lots of players run games with lots of players Run a lot of different systems and play in a lot of different systems. So become both a player and a GM, you know, sit in groups where somebody else is GMing with lots of different players. Watch that. It's a really interesting way to watch from the outside and play a bunch of different systems and try things out. So the more you can expand in that, the more interesting stuff that you're going to pick up on. The more ideas you'll pick up from DMs, the more you'll see role models, both good and bad for DMs. You'll get a better idea of like what different players are bringing to the table and the kinds of ways to interact with them. You'll get lots of different stuff. So playing lots of different systems, both playing and GMing and playing with lots of different groups and lots of different players are really really excellent ways to get better at GMing now that's not possible for everybody so sometimes one good way to learn that is to learn other systems watching people play you can watch this on YouTube you can go and see how are people playing Ironsworn how are people playing Shadow Dark how are people playing other RPGs and you can look at some of the really good ones Brendan Lee Mulligan's videos where he's running these incredible games but also you can watch games where they're not they don't have as big a viewership or It's more... I will refer to as normal people, you know, actors, not not actors, but just players who aren't, you know, who are just sitting around playing D&D or playing an RPG. You can learn a lot from watching them too. So there are ways to kind of pick up on that without necessarily running lots of games. But now that online play has gotten so much bigger, it's worth your time. If you have the time, a lot of people don't have the time, but if you have the time, it could be worth it to try to go find these other groups, jump into games, become a player, offer to run games. If you're willing to offer, if you're willing to run games for people you don't know, you will always find players because there's lots of players who are interested in playing lots of different systems so play and run lots of systems be both a GM and a player in these game, in these games and play with lots of different players you can learn you can learn an awful lot. Victor N says you've mentioned that you're a fan of Raging Swans Dungeon Dressing supplements. I am. I have them all right over there. And I'm wondering how you incorporate these into your games. Do you use them in the planning and prep stage or do you actually bring them up during live play? As a DM who likes to have his random encounters prepared in advance, I'm hesitant to deploy resources like this during live play for fear of slowing down the game by searching up and down reading tables while the players wait. That that is correct. Your, your your approach is fine. I I don't typically use random tables during the game. I use random tables to kind of prepare things. So a lot of times I'll use random ideas to get the to to set things up. You, you'll note that like the eight steps from return, none of them none of those eight steps are roll random stuff. Well, sorry, none of the eight steps are getting you ready to roll random stuff at the table, but you can roll random stuff to do it. The example is relics. If I have certain magic items, when I'm doing treasure, I don't roll treasure during the game. I have already rolled treasure. I already have parcels set up. I already know what items are in there, and that way I can eliminate if i if i find like a problematic magic item that i know is going to bust my game i can pull that out and that works fine there's so i i'm i'm a big proponent of using random tables during your prep to shake your brain up to get big ideas about what you're doing and not worry about trying to roll those random tables at the table you might still do it but you can even kind of have a subset of stuff you might even create your own small set of random tables where any of the four of them are fine but you're already familiar with all four and then you can roll on them so you might I will sometimes pick four relics but I don't often deliver all four relics I only deliver one of them maybe I roll to see which one I do same with monsters maybe you create your own monster list you're like any of these monsters could be effective but maybe I'm only going to run one or two and maybe put a little number in front of it and you roll a die and see so you could create your own list but generally yeah the from for like raging swans material for my stuff in the lazy dms companion for the random tables in the dungeon master's guide all the other different sources of random material that you can find the i think the general intention is that you're using that during prep not during play and i don't think there's anything wrong with doing that you should not feel bad for not rolling during the game that's not when people talk about being prepared to improvise you're not really being prepared to improvise if you're rolling randomly on the table during the game. That's not a, a hard rule. That's a soft rule, but it's a. generally I think you're doing fine. Nacho N says, I recently hung out with my players outside of the table and discovered a couple of them were going through some real-life challenges which were bringing them down. After hearing this, I thought about what I could do, if anything, as a GM. Do you think it's ever a good idea to introduce challenges slash themes from the players' real lives into the game? in an effort to bring them some sort of victory or catharsis which would otherwise be an un- un- unattainable outside of the table? Or would this be detrimental to the escapist nature of the game and better left out in the real world? Leave it, leave it out. Focus on giving them the escape. That my number one piece of advice is you're probably not the one to help them work through these issues. Almost certainly you're not the one to help them work through these issues. I certainly would never do it without talking to them. And I probably would never do it without talking to the group. And even then I probably wouldn't do it anyway because you are not a social worker. You're not a therapist. Probably unless you are. In this case, I still think there's like a separation of your professional and your personal thing going on here. But I would, it, you're, you're not a professional in this and it's, it's likely depending on the, what they're dealing with, you, you're not being specific and that's fine about what they're dealing with. Probably if they need to talk to somebody about it, I mean, you can certainly talk to them about it as a friend, but don't do it. Don't bring it to the game. Don't, don't, I would not, I would not, the game is, is to help people have an opportunity to break away from that kind of thing. And I would, I would certainly focus on that. Yeah. So, so don't, yeah, don't don't try to don't try to do it in, in, in game. I think that would be I think that would be a bad idea. And again, big reason is you're not a you're not a professional on this. Can professionals use like role playing experiences to help people work through it? Probably. But that should be set up specifically by a professional with the consent of the of the patient at that point to try to work through it. But don't don't try to. Yeah, don't don't try to do that don't try to do it on your own just give them an escape give them a give them give them an ear give them some laughs let them have some fun with their characters and even still be careful about hitting on events that might might connect to their real world trouble that's why we have safety tools that's why we have pause for a minute we don't want to go that way but also if you're aware of the issues they're going through you can be careful to make sure to stay away from some of that stuff so that they can just have an opportunity to have control over some aspect of their life in a way that's fun good question answer is no Justin C. I am running a traps dungeon I know not your favorite and I'm including some NPCs for my players to interact with and provide some upward beats how many is too many? how do I avoid having multiple NPCs in a scene keep them from stealing the spotlight or is there a better way to create a space for upward beats in a tomb horror-esque dungeon so it's kind of funny having an idea that I have too many upward beats in my death trap dungeon usually it's the opposite usually you don't have Usually you don't have that many, you know, that, that many upward beats. And I would not have, I mean, a, in any scene, I wouldn't introduce too many NPCs, Just like anything. You don't want to introduce too many characters in fiction all at once because people are going to get lost. So stick to one, right? So When, when the characters go into a secret room and there's like one, have one. If they meet a bunch of prisoners, have one prisoner who's speaking to them as the primary point and all the rest are sort of following that one. So how many is too many? Probably more than one is is too many and and yeah you don't want and then you probably don't want them to stick around either so you don't want the npc to follow the carrying we've talked about this last we, we you know we, we talked about this last last week about i think it was kyle's situation of too many npcs following the characters around so you generally don't want them following around give them a good way like if they if they rescue a prisoner give the prisoner an opportunity to escape from the dungeon and leave and and you don't have to worry that he's going to get killed on the way and you don't need to drag him around through the rest of the death trap dungeon if it's a ghost maybe the ghost wanders away if it's a magic item magic item npcs are great i've talked about npc npcs introduced as like haunted magic items that's fantastic and they don't steal the spotlight because they're in the hands of the character so generally it's it's one but it's it's rare in my experience is rare to have too many upward beats in a death trap dungeon because it's just hard to find upward beats there anyway. But generally, I would not have any NPCs follow your characters around. I'd keep the spotlight on the characters, as you say. You clearly have an idea that it's important to keep a spotlight going. I would just keep it to generally one NPC. I think you really only need to introduce one, and I think I think that that works. I think that that works best. J M says, from listening to your podcast, you seem to get through a lot of plot material each session. I find that one one of one of one or more combats. I assume I find that one or more combats doesn't leave much time to deliver secrets, interact substantially with NPCs, or do other things that can advance the story. How long is your typical game session, and how do you manage to, your pacing? How much story progression is, satis- is is satisfactory for the DM and for the players? So my games are about three hours, right? My games are both I have two, three regular games a week, three, Two regular games a week, and then one every other week, and all of them are three hours long, which I find to be the ideal amount of time for me. That's my, you know, I i, I don't burn out. I, it's easier for me to prep when it's a three hour game, even adding that extra fourth hour. Well, I'm not opposed to a four hour game, but generally speaking, I find that three hours is the right amount of material. It's a right size for me to fit in a good amount of progression and still and, and, and still keep the game brief enough that the prep is easier and people are paying attention and it doesn't eat too much time in, in a day and people are able to make it more often. I think if I tried to do four hours, I think I would have a, m- attendance issues. I think people would have a harder time fitting an entire four hour game into a, into a session. So I, I tend to stick to three and I managed to get through an awful lot. And I think some of the ways, some of the things that help, you probably heard me talk about before, having that strong start, knowing where, you know, fire off the, 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 the session with a bang. Fire off and get started right away. Don't start by saying like last week we did this and what do you guys wanna do now? You you have an event that draws the characters into the game. Every session you have some kind of event. Doesn't have to be a battle, although a battle works really nice when you run a battle, but it can be anything. Just an event happens that draws them into the story. That's a really good way. Making sure not to, ma- to make every battle a big, high challenge, high tactical battle with multiple different monster types and big environments. Th- those are really cool for set piece battles, but don't make every battle a set piece battle or they're just gonna eat up all of the time that you have. Then the other one is about like revealing secrets or having conversations with NPCs. You can slide those into a battle so they can still learn things while they're engaged in combat. But there's there's lots of different ways that, you know, if you, I'm hmm. my train of thought again. So you can kind of fit some of NPC interaction and some secrets into a battle, but even better is just have fewer battles. I say it all the time and not everybody does it and that's fine. But I'll tell you, running battles in the theater of their mind or with an abstract map where you don't have to pull out a grid and you don't have to move minis around, it makes those battles a lot faster. And if you can get your character, if you get your players used to playing that style, they'll recognize it. They know what the authority they have. It still matters. It's still combat. They still have choices, but it runs much faster. And another way is have fewer players. Right. If you're playing for six players all the time, it's gonna take longer. If you're playing for four, it moves along. I, I had a game where we had a couple of people we had a couple of people that weren't there and we played with four and the other player we love those other players and no way are we gonna get rid of them or anything like that. But they were like wow this ran really well it was really smooth i'm like yeah it is and combat balance is better so like aim for four characters aim for four players if you can and and you get a lot more done but yeah i just i feel like i do get a lot done in a three-hour session i feel and i feel like the prep that i do helps me get that material out there knowing what secrets and clues i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about or that i could be potentially revealing getting that strong start drawing them in moving things forward keeping that pacing good keeping the upward and downward beats moving smoothly that they just it 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 works and and makes it's very satisfactory to me i feel like we get a lot done if you want to know like how much i get done you can look at my prep videos and i talk about each session afterwards so you can see like how much do i manage to accomplish but i feel like i get i get to accomplish a lot the other one though is i'm not afraid about stopping in the middle so i'm if they're in the middle of exploring a dungeon i'm okay with stopping right at that point in the dungeon it means i have a strong start And so it means that the campaign moves along. So I don't feel like I have to like perfectly fit an adventure into one session. I'm happy to stop in the middle of an adventure and pick it up next time. So I And and you get a lot done. It's sort of like picking up a book. You can read more if you don't try to get to the end of the chapter every time. If you just are willing to stop in the middle of a section of a book and then pick it up later, you actually can get more reading done. Jesse E says, how do you approach online play when there are multiple players in the same physical location? My partner is one of my players, and we play with other couples and a group of housemates across various games. It can be frustrating or difficult to figure out mincing two, or, mixing two or more people in the same room, dealing with crosstalk among people in one space, or handling VTTs in such situations. Thanks for all the great work over the years. Thank you. So, yeah, I actually... My groups are like this. My, my Saturday group, my every other Saturday group, has two couples... That both are in the same location. My wife and I are in our spot, and my friend Chris and Sharon that they are in their in their home. And then we have three others who are individual. And I, I it, good microphone behavior is really critical. That if they're going to talk within their group, they should mute so that their talk is not getting out to everybody else, unless they're talking. Expecting to be able to talk to the other people. It can be tricky. Any kind of crosstalk is hard in any kind of online play. And it helps to have adult conversations with them about when to mute when not to mute when background noise is there how do they you know if they if you really need to if you have a lot of people doing something where like in the text chat you're watching and people are saying like hey it's time you could even have one of the other players act as sort of a moderator to make sure that everybody's asking like if you it's not something you want to handle one of the other players can help say like okay jack it's your turn to talk okay john it's now now you were saying something have somebody else do the moderation of calling on individual people you can call on individual people instead of saying like who wants to open the door say like jack do you want to open the door? John, do you want to open the door? You know, something like that. So, but, but this it's, it's hard in online play anyway. And I guess it can be harder when you have multiple people, but at least you don't have crosstalk between them. But a big one is, is they need to know when to mute. If they're not, if they're talking about something locally, they should mute so that they're not interrupting other people. That would be, that would be a big help. As far as handling VTTs and stuff like that, I don't really know. I I would probably ask them. And so one thing you could do is you could ask them to go to different parts of their domicile and connect individually if you're seeing a lot of problem that way you might say look it would actually run better if you guys were in separate rooms than it is to be in the same room one trick is to share one microphone so have one microphone that they're using on their side and if they can make it a good microphone a good omnidirectional microphone that can pick up a lot so that you can you can easily hear everybody that's there that can that can definitely help but if that's tricky then you might ask people to uh, operate out of separate rooms that my, my wife and i have from time to time when we're playing she'll play in one room play in another and we use our own microphones and our own headsets so it's basically we could be on other sides of the world so if you're finding that that having people together in a room is actually making it harder see if you can separate and see if that works. Jesse, I hope that helps. Jay says, not really a question, but I would love if you could talk about your Dungeon 23 progress. What inspiration, fun, and challenges have you had? Yeah, I have been doing Dungeon 23 now for three full months. I've done a a room every day and all of my Dungeon 23 stuff has worked out. So I've been making a room every day. My approach has worked well, which is I can quit whenever I want. I have full permission to suck. And if I miss a day, I just can get started on the next day. And I have missed a couple of days. And then just the next day I've done two rooms instead of one. But one thing is like, you can tell I'm doing, I actually like in this case, I had like two sentences for every room. This was week, this was week one. It actually wasn't week one. The Temple of Zen was my first level. Then the Catacombs was the next level. The Vampire Shit was one of the levels. It looks like I got seven levels so far. The Primordial Vaults, which sat below Vampire Shit. The Lost Cisterns, which sat below that. And then I'm currently doing the Craves of the Crystalline Souls. And so I've got seven levels so far. And I just do a couple of things. Like yesterday I did the Maw. And I said Petrified Crystallized Worm. That's all I did, right? So like there's the room, right? And there's the description, the Maw, right? Petrified Crystallized Worms. I found that by making it really easy for me to do, it actually takes longer for me to take the picture and post it up on the Dungeon23 Discord channel that we've got than it does to do the room. Doing the room is very, very fast. The only time where I like cognitive work and cognitive load is really high is when I know that I'm getting close to the end of a level and it's time to do a new level. And I basically do a new level whenever I run out of space on the page. So this one looks like I might get 20 rooms in the Caverns of the Crystalline Souls. If I can fit 5 more rooms in here, and it's going to be a little tight to even get 5 more rooms in there, then, then it's time for me to do a new level. And, and all I do is think generally like what's an idea for the level under this where else do i want to go i don't really think too far ahead i don't come up with a whole bunch of stuff and i don't even need to think about like what are the rooms for that level i just think of a level concept and one level concept which is kind of gross was that the machine up above is being fueled and lubricated by human bodies and stuff and all of the remains of that have been flowing down to the chamber below where they have been crystallizing and the souls of the dead are trapped in the crystalline stuff. So the crystalline soul place is actually because the Lost Sisters above. So then I think like, what would be below the crystalline area? I don't even know, but I don't have to know. I've got a, I've got a week to worry. So I try to do like one theme for each level and then, you know, just just go with that. So like the vampire shit level was like a tomb slash altar where the vampires hung out but a lot of blood from their stuff was dripping down to the realm below where prim- primordial beings had been ingesting it for centuries and now they've got their the primordial vaults are these kind of vampiric blood-touched humanoids and they build their altars and they don't even know what's really what's above them and then deeper below them was the, the lost cisterns which is these big piles of ancient machines so, so I've really enjoyed it. You know, it's, it's been a really fun exercise. I don't know that anything will ever come from it. I don't plan on turning it into a published work because taking this and turning it into a published work is about as hard as doing it from scratch. So, but it's been, it's been lots of fun. I've really, I've really enjoyed doing it. Ciaran O says, I, I, I'd, I'd like to know how you approach passive insight. I have a player who has taken expertise and in insight and now rocks a passive insight of 18 at level five. I like the idea of her being a human lie detector, but most NPCs would not have a high enough passive per- deception to get past her i feel like this would ruin secrets and surprises i have down the story down the line in the story i'm curious how to how you'd run or adjudicate this without inhibiting player fun so one thing is making sure that the plot drives of your adventure are not dependent upon the secrets that are held by npcs that can be a big one that if you move it away from a mystery and more towards action and more towards what the characters are able to do with the information that they've got. You you don't have to worry so much that they have a passive insight of 18. Yeah, they are a human lie detector. And and again, it's not it's not that they know what the other person is saying. They don't know what the lie is. They just know they're lying. They can just tell something's off. They don't automatically know the answer. So You know, you can like in that case, and it it is fun from time to time for them to run into people who are clearly going to betray them, and you just say, "Oh, this person is absolutely you're sure this person is on the bad side and going to betray you." let that happen it actually makes the storytelling a lot more fun when the characters do know this stuff ahead of time because it's so unexpected that they would know the things that they know I had great fun in my Ghost of Saltmarsh game where they befriended a vampire who started charming all the bad guys and telling them the whole mission of all the bad guy stuff and it was like in one day they learned everything about the entire plot of that was going on and the players loved it and I thought it was fun because then they got to manipulate that plot and work with it and it didn't mean that all of the excitement of the adventure was gone it just changed where the excitement came from and I found that really good so I would lean into it I would I would let them discover things and but mostly I would make sure that the drive of your adventure is not based on the secrets that NPCs hold but like where they're going what are those what are those things that are in motion that the players need to deal with or need to try to stop that that can be a lot of fun so I hope that yeah I hope that answers your question but yeah that leaning into that it, it's going to change how the adventure works but so do lots of things when characters get access to fly suddenly things change a lot so how do you how do you how do you find out you know, how do you dig into that is really a good way to do it joe says i was wondering how you handle transitioning to a new scene during a spiral development like in your eberron game did you just offer the different scenes that the in the next places to go or were these scenes only hinted organically through gameplay i have tried my hand at this style and i'm not sure if i should just offer up the options for different scenes at the conclusion of a particular scene so i have an idea called that i that i call like three plus infinite choices which is the idea that you generally have three options that you can put in front of the characters but they are free to come up with any other options that you may not have thought of so if you have players that are particularly good at thinking about the situation and figuring out their next path and direction you let them do so and you can kind of lean in that way but a lot of times players are kind of like i don't know exactly where to go again players are only picking up half of what you're saying half the time so half of the time they're only picking about half of what you're saying. So. You you might have to offer those choices. So I, I I often do say you know at this point you think you have a couple different paths you could take. You could go here. You could go there. You could do the other. Or if you have any other ideas, you could certainly do those as well. And I think that it's absolutely fine to offer choices like that. And, you know, open ended. You're saying here are three that you get. Especially if they've come up with them you keep track of the paths that they've been talking about and then you recite them back to them so that they know that there's some clarity there. That is a good way to go as well. And I often like to offer those choices, those big choices and scenes at the end of a session so that you know where you need to go in the next session. It depends on how big the scene change is. Maybe if they're just going from like different shops in a town, you don't really have to do that. But if it's like major arcs of a campaign or major arcs of an adventure and you don't really have anything prepared for one path or the other, then you probably want to offer up multiple choices to people and let let them pick closer to the end of a session so that you can spend a little time preparing for the direction that they go. I hope that helps. Jason K says, I tend to run campaigns that take two years or more to complete. I have no idea how to run a campaign that lasts only eight to 12 sessions. If you don't mind, can you share your thoughts and opinions on how to run short campaigns that last three months or less? Yeah. So I've had a, I tend to run like one year, one to two year campaigns, in which case I don't tend to worry too much about like where, how things are going to go or the pacing. But if you are going to run a short one, a short campaign that's eight to 12 sessions, which isn't terribly short. It's not a one shot. That's still a fair amount of stuff. What do you do? And the answer is get as close to the ending as you can think about think about getting as close to the ending as you can if you imagine tomb of annihilation for example tomb of annihilation starts in port Nyanzaru and you go through all the jungles of chult and there's lots of adventures you have you eventually find the lost city of omu you deal with all the stuff going on in omu then you go into the t- the tomb of the nine gods and then you spend the rest of the time in the tomb of the nine gods if you were doing eight to twelve sessions you might start in omu you might you might jump cut away from all of the travel through and away from Port Nyan-Zarun, start them in Omu because it's closer to the end of the campaign. Maybe you even start them on their way into the, the Tomb of the Nine Gods, right? Maybe you have like one scene outside of the tomb where they're dealing with all the political intrigue of what's going on. And then boom, they're in the temple. And the, the the game is focused on the temple. If you're running Curse of Strahd, for example, and you wanted to run that in eight to twelve sessions instead of running it as a big campaign. All you know move all the things that the characters need to discover to deal with Strahd. Move those a lot closer to the castle. And maybe your eight to twelve sessions is just them exploring the castle. I, I actually can run the castle in one session if I if I do it for a Halloween game. But if you're doing a longer game, you can, you know, decide like look at the end of the campaign where you think the end is going to go. And then work backwards from there to think about roughly how many sessions is it going to take to get to that ending? and even if you're doing a homebrew campaign you can still do the same thing what what is that general arc of the campaign that you're considering what is the big the big goal that the campaign is going to reach and then instead of saying like we're going to start here and get to that goal think about the goal and work your way backwards not session by session you're not planning every single session you're just looking at like what kind of material do you think you're going to be able to fit in that in that situation to fit 8 to 12 sessions instead of trying to run a two a one year or two year campaign and probably want to shrink number of villains maybe you only have one or two villains maybe you have villains that are more tightly connected than than wide spanning villains and and, fo- and focus on that so i when i've run shorter campaigns and i've done something like that it's worked a lot better. It's worked a lot better when I had a good idea of where the campaign was going to go and work backwards. Shadow of the Demon Lord was one where it was 11 sessions. I knew it was going to be 11 sessions. And every time I kind of started at the end and worked backwards to think about what we were going to do. In that case, I had a published, sort of a published game, but I knew where each session was going to go And I, and I, and it all followed the path along. So, so that's a way to go. So I hope that helps friends. I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in RPGs. If you like this show and you want more information like this, you can join, you can join the Sly Flourish newsletter. There is a link down in the show notes below. Those who join the newsletter get a weekly RPG-related email sent directly to your inbox along with a free adventure generator PDF. It's completely free to sign up. You can also join the Sly Flourish Patreon. Patrons get access to the monthly Q&A, a dedicated Discord server, a bunch of exclusive adventures, lots and lots of other tools, tips, tricks, and accessories for playing your 5e RPGs or your, or your tabletop RPGs. And you can also pick up any of my books at the Sly Flourish bookstore. There's a link down in the show notes below. The books include Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DM's Companion, and the Lazy DM's Workbook. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.